2 with me. And while you're turning there, I'd like to just take a few minutes here and just pause in our service. The ushers, you have microphones in hand, I would hope. Okay, we would, I would like to see here if you have some testimonies as you wrapped up 2017. And I know we're already busy into 2018. But as you reflected last week and started thinking about what did the Lord do, unusual situations, how the Lord carried you through, to just give opportunity for you to express your appreciation to the Lord in a public setting about what He has done, growth, challenges, blessings during the past year. And typically when we do this, everybody hesitates because nobody wants to be the first. Then we get those awkward pauses and almost always people say to me, I was just ready to give a testimony and you stop them. Okay, because there was this gap. So if you would like to give a testimony, don't hesitate. On three, raise your hand. They'll bring it out, bring the microphone. We'll keep them going all over. One, two, three. Any testimonies that you would like to share of what the Lord has done? Otherwise, I'm preaching longer. Okay. Warren has one over there. Anybody over here will get the microphone to you. It's on your other side there, Warren. He's behind you. Microphone back that way, please. Behind you. I think his rejoicing on earth was more than the rejoicing in heaven the day they led the person to the Lord. Anybody else? Any other testimonies, praises, thanksgiving? Then I'm preaching longer. Let's go to Matthew, okay? Matthew chapter 7, as we, Matthew 2, as we get going here this evening. Thank you for those testimonies. We appreciate that. Let me just do a little bit, just to get our minds going, since we have, how many really love the cold? 
You really, you really like the cold? Okay, the rest of us want no fellowship with you. Okay, just, just thinking about cold and putting it in perspective. Here, a little bit of trivia. How many inches of snow does it take to equal one inch of rain? 12, 10, 8, 6, 5, or 4, or 2? Okay, it's 10. Yeah, you guys got that. This one, this one you're familiar with. What is the tallest snowman on record? Okay, 30 feet, 57, 79, 97, 113, or 666? What do you think? 79 feet is not right. 30 feet is not right. 97 is not right. Okay? It's not 57. You're down to two. Okay? You can probably eliminate one of them real quickly. Okay? 113 feet was the snowman that they made in 1999. God bless them. Okay? How many sides or points does the typical snowflake have? Do they vary? Is it 4, 6, 8, 10, 12? Actually, it's 6. Okay, They typically have 6. What's the largest snowfall in the U.S. in a 24-hour period? Okay, 80 inches, 76, 63, 52, 47, or 43? In a 24-hour period, what do you guess? Erie, Pennsylvania. No. Buffalo, New York, no. Fairbanks, no. Piers, Minnesota, no. Okay. 76 inches in Silver Lake, Colorado. That's a lot of snow. Doesn't it? Aren't you more grateful now of what we get? Let, let's make a little bit. What's the most snow in one spot in the United States during the course of the season since they've been keeping the records for the entire winter? 95 feet, 76 feet, 61 feet, 58, 57, 43. For the whole winter. What do you want to guess? Buffalo, New York is not right. Erie is not right. Nome is not right. New Hampshire is not right. 95 feet. Aren't we blessed? We live, in, we live in just wonderful climate. Let's talk about cold, okay? How cold it can get. Which one of these is considered the coldest country? Nope. Siberia, minus 74 degrees Fahrenheit in 1974. So that means zero has been not too bad. Okay. How does cold weather affect us physically? One of these is the correct answer. Some can be following other things. Makes us more energetic, eat more, eat less, less energetic. We get bored. No real difference between warm and cold temps. What we do, we lose the appetite. Okay, physically we lose appetite, but losing the appetite means we do less. And you're thinking, no way, no way. Christmas is my worst time, but this is the way that scientists say it physically affects us the most. There's one insect that migrates that's smart enough to get out of the area, and it goes south. Which one of these is the one insect that migrates every year? 
Yeah, it's the monarch butterfly. So we're talking about some of those things that happen with winter. We typically talk about the wise men, that they come and we picture them coming in the wintertime. We really don't know when they came. As we talked about two weeks ago on a Sunday morning, we don't know how many there were. We don't know exactly when they came or where they came from. We think there could be several. We know there's at least two because of the plural. We think they're from the region of Persia, uh, that region where Babylon, where Daniel was. We know that they show up at a time when Jesus is already a lad in Matthew 2 as we picked up. And again, you were, if you were with us two weeks ago, you heard the part, first part of this message where we talked about in Matthew chapter 2 when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the Great. It says, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. And they said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled. All Jerusalem was bothered with him as well. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where the Christ should be born. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of you shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star should appear. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, and when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother. Now, the young, notice they're in a house. The young child is not an infant, but a toddler, very clearly from the word. They fell down and worshipped him, and when they opened their treasures and presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense as myrrh, and being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord then appears unto Joseph. Let's pick up where we were talking about here a couple weeks ago and pretend that this was this morning that we'd first talked about these other points. Wise people back then, as well as here in this coming year, wise people are the folk who will worship the Christ. They want to learn more about him. They accept what revelation they had. They want to get closer to him. They, they are individuals who, will, who are not ashamed to talk about what they know, to inquire, to learn, and they're going to be open. They, they want to be an individual who wants to honor and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We added to it that they display a joy, even when there's changes of circumstances. They're individuals that even though others may not be seeking after the Lord, they seek. They don't give up on serving Christ, even when they are led by the Spirit of God, not to something they expect to an unexpected spot. They thought he would be of royal, of royal a household because of his royal lineage, but he wasn't. He was there in this house, and they, were, they expect him to be in a palace, and yet they still worship him, despite the fact that they are led somewhere that, they are, that God is leading them in a way that they totally didn't expect. Let's pick up from there. Let's add a few more thoughts and observations about wise people to say we ought to exemplify this in our life. This is the way we should be wiser teens, wiser parents, wiser uh, adults and, and workers. How do we do that? Let's do number, the next one, number 10. Wise men, real wise men are people who have a spirit of humility. A spirit of humility that is not condescending towards others. That in fact, they come in and they're asking the commoners of the city, give us some information. 
there's no indication that they are decrying or they are degrading towards the other individuals. They aren't pompous, they aren't arrogant, even though they are probably, if we understand culture right, that they are being wise men, they are philosophers, they are astronomers, they are uh, schooled in religion and philosophies and medicines and all the different arts and sciences of the day. That were the sages. That was the description of wise men back in Daniel's era, in Daniel's lineage, and that's where we assume these men were. And yet they come into Jerusalem and they're open. They're open to somebody to teach them, to give them direction, who may not have the same degrees, that may not have the same, the, the same wealth as them. They're individuals who show an act of humility by even their questioning, their desire to learn about Christ. Humility is an is a often lost art. It's something that we all struggle with, and yet it is so critical. Gentlemen, John Stuart Blackie was a teacher in the University of Edinburgh. Now, he was a believer. And in the school, they taught, taught some Christian principles and things of that sort. But they didn't have everyone required to be a believer to enter into the school. And they had certain rules and regulations as far as what was appropriate as far as attire. What was appropriate at, in those days about when you stand and you speak. You stood a certain way. If you had a reading that you were to do, you held the reading in a certain way. What I'm doing right now, standing away from the pulpit, would have been taboo for that culture in that time and in that school. And they were rigidly taught to have the proper decorum. And so one of the, one of the rules for those who would do any public speaking or reading is they would have to hold in their one hand, and it had to be, if I'm not mistaken, it had to be the right hand, that they would hold the reading in that hand. You couldn't even hold it in your left hand. Well, one student got up in Blackie's class, and he was holding the book in the wrong hand. Professor Blackie had been having a bad day. It wasn't going well, and he exploded. He came from the back of the room, came to the front, and he scolded the student who should have known better. And he just basically ripped him apart verbally in a matter of 30 seconds about how arrogant, how disobedient, how disrespectful he was and not, a, not following proper decorum. The young man said not a word, but he lifted up his right hand, and there was no hand, there was only a stump. Dr. Blackie was shocked. The rest of the room went quiet. Dr. Blackie composed himself and with tears apologized to that young man that he had not known the situation, that he had spoken inappropriately to him, that he had degraded him when it was something that was not by choice, but it was something by default. He had no choice because he had no hand. Dr. Blackie asked his forgiveness in front of the entire room. Years later, the story was being relayed by another person who was in that classroom that day preaching to a crowd. And he was talking about how Dr. Blackie's testimony just ramped up in his own mind because of his attitude of repentance and humility when he had made a mistake. And how he was, he was so affected as a student to realize arrogance, there's no place for it. When we make a mistake, we admit it, we ask for forgiveness, and then we move on. The man got done with his talk, and before he closed, somebody asked if they could add something to it, if they could give a testimonial to back up what the man had been saying about humility. The man walked to the front. They recognized each other. They were classmates. The man who walked towards the front you know, gave the greetings, and then he held up his hand. Well, there was no hand. He told the crowd, he says, I was that student that the preacher was just talking about. And I want to add something to it. I was not saved at the time I went to the school. 
But later on, I got saved. And the person who led me to the Lord was Dr. Blackie. Because he had humbled himself, because he showed a spirit of humility, I admired him so much, I listened to him when he came to talk to me one day about my own soul. Spirit of humility at all levels. Do any of you ever hear of Booker T. Washington? Okay, he's, he was a famous American. He grew up in an era when blacks were still, you know, different fountains, different serving areas. But he was one of those leading advocates in that time, in the early 1900s, for black rights, for the situation of saying, let's get education. Let's, let's, uh, uh, let's address our needs by educating the young black folks so that they could rise and help themselves to grow in society. He ends up becoming the pres- president of Tuskegee, Tuskegee University. I'm not even going to say it right. I'm stumbling. And so he's this man who at this time, by the incident that happened I'm going to tell you about, he's the president of the school. He's already an author. He is a public speaker. He has already visited President uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt in the White House, the first black man who was invited for a conference, which cost Roosevelt a lot of votes because of the attitude at that time. But here he is... Booker T. Washington is walking down the street. As he's walking down the street one day, doing, headed for the store, and uh, he's walking along, a woman out in her yard asks him if he would like to make a few extra dollars. She had some chores for somebody to do, and would he like to make you know, a little bit of money? He said, sure. He took off his coat, he went inside, and he chopped wood for her for a couple hours. Now, he's chopping the wood, and the woman's daughter comes walking by. The woman's daughter sees it's Dr. Washington doing the chopping of the wood. She goes in and aghast, she says to her mom, do you know who you have out there chopping wood? What did you do? And she explains that that's Booker T. Washington. The woman is just, she wants to die. She's heard of him, but she had never seen him face to face. She goes out and she apologizes, apologizes profusely by saying, you know, I, I just assumed, I shouldn't have assumed, by appearances, would you forgive me? And as he's putting his coat back on, he says, you know what, I really appreciate it. You can keep your money, but I really appreciate the opportunity to do a little bit of manual labor. It's good for people to do it. The lady was so impressed by his attitude and his humility and his servanthood that she went and got several of her friends, and over the next few years, they were some of the major donors to the Tuskegee University to help it get off the ground and to continue in its primary years, its infancy years. The spirit of humility, modern days, not real modern, but back in just a few decades ago, Senator John Stennis, he was the chairman of the, of the Armed Forces Committee. He's finishing up his day at the Senate, and he goes home. He wants to have a nice evening of relaxing. He gets to his driveway there in Washington, D.C., where he has his house, and he gets out, and when he gets out of the car... Two thugs come out of the bushes to rob him. And he resists slightly, but he's, he's not able to resist a whole lot. They rob him and they shoot him twice. Two bullets. He's collapsed. The ambulance is called when his family comes out and sees what's happening. The thieves take off. And he ends up at the hospital, seven hours of surgery. Now, during that time, the hospital is getting flooded with all kinds of phone calls. His staff has set up a temporary um, operating board there in the hospital where they can answer calls. And so people are flooding there, and one gentleman shows up. After he hears about it on the radio, he's headed for home. He turns around, goes to the hospital. He gets to the hospital and sees that there's one operator's chair that's empty. 
I can give a hand. So he sits down and he starts handling the phone calls and giving information. It happens to be, uh, I'm sorry, that should be Mark Hatfield, not the same man's name. The one on the right is Mark Hatfield of Oregon. These two guys are political opponents. They are in total opposite camps. Mark Hatfield sits down and he's operating, but he never tells anybody who he is until it's all wrapped up. It's early in the morning. He's worked the whole entire night. And he gets up and he says to, to Stennis's chief of staff sitting there, you know, down there a little bit ways, he goes over and he says, hey, I'm leaving. He says, what are you doing here, Senator? He says, well, I've been over there helping man the, the phones. And only then did they recognize that here he is, another major role player in the Senate, had just come in and done the most humble of deeds without looking for accolades. In fact, they wanted to do interviews uh, with Mark Hatfield for what he had done, and he refused them afterwards. The concern wasn't what I had done. You should be talking about Stennis's condition. Is there opportunities for us to show a spirit of humility and servanthood day in and day out? The answer is absolutely yes. Is it a battle for us? Absolutely yes. But wise people in 2018, like you, are individuals who say, this is an area I want to address. This is an area that I want to work on. An area where I am showing humility towards other people and working on just having the right attitude of servanthood. Wise people will definitely, moving on, they will humble themselves before Jesus Christ. Here in this, this passage, it says that when they come in and they see Christ, they fell down before him. They worshiped him. They, they humbled themselves in the sense of they're, just, they're prostrate before Christ, even though he's a child. They are individuals who realize that they owe him everything. Isn't this a paradox? Isn't this a contradiction when we think about it? Here they are, rich people bowing down to somebody who's poor. Here they are, much older, bowing down to somebody who is just an infant or toddler age. Here they are, nobility, coming to an individual who lives in a lowly home, but they humble themselves before him. Here they are, scholars, who come to somebody who hasn't had any kind of tutelage here on earth up to this point. They have the spirit of humbling before Christ because they know who they are. They recognize that they are mere individuals who are servants of the great King of Kings, Lord of Lords. That it's not about them. It's not about them getting credit or recognition. It's all about Christ being honored above us. When we think about bowing down, we understand that the Bible makes it clear that God has exalted Jesus Christ and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and on earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Christ is the Lord. We know that's going to happen one day, but in our lives, this should be the day that we are saying, he is the Lord, he is the great one, we are merely his servants. And bowing before him. In the sense, should we ask if it's true in your my life? Should we do a little bit of, of examination to say, do you bow enough in prayer? Have you determined that you are going to bow before his will and follow in baptism? Have you bowed enough to the Lord that you say, I will obey your commands, including listening to my parents and respecting my parents? I will bow in the sense that I will let you be the Lord and the one to whom I yield my attire, my appearance, my attitudes, my words. I will be an individual that I will submit those things that I choose for entertainment to your desires, to your plans. And in 2018, I will let you be the dictator of my entertainment, 
of the way I walk and talk and act, that I will even be so willing to say your will above my will for the next year, for the next 10 years if you should tarry, for the rest of my life. I will let you be Lord, not just in the lip service, but I actually will humble myself before you. Is that you? Here on the eve of going into the year of 2018, can you honestly say, I have a humble spirit before Christ that he is my Lord and I yield myself to him? True or false? Yes or no? Is that your spirit? Wise people are individuals who they will say that I'm going to be an individual who will show humility this way, but most importantly, I'll show humility in this direction. Wise people are individuals that as the wise men, there's, there's just so much that can be said on this regard. They give the best that they have to Jesus Christ. Well, we know all about that. They come and they present the, the gifts that we talk about and we joke about and that the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. And the kids can't say it, so they'll say they gave gold and Frankenstein and all those other things that they mix up. But the reality is they are giving they gave that which was the best that they had. They gave gifts that were expensive and rare. They gave the perfumes and the ointments that represented all different types of ideas. But from the heart, they were giving. Not only were they costly gifts, but when you look at it and read the wording in the original, they opened up their treasure chest is the idea, that there was a cask of these things. It wasn't just some tiny amount. They were giving a substantial amount to the Christ child. They were giving gifts that were expensive. They were giving gifts that cost them a sacrifice and some effort. They were giving gifts that they present, even though it was dangerous for them to go and to travel to give that gift. They were determined to give to Christ, even though it may be a je in jeopardy for them. They didn't hesitate to give. They were individuals who give them, and even though they get there and he's not what they expect, his family isn't what they expect, his home isn't what they expect, they give to Christ of their very best. Do you? Have you? Have you given? And I, I dare say that the majority of you, that's probably true. This is your testimony. You have given to Christ. You have sacrificed. And God bless you for it and honor you for it, for your faithfulness in giving to him. But have you, have you paused in that attitude? Have you at all even thought about not giving like you have? in the past. This year, give to Christ. The ways we can do that are real simple. I remind you, giving to Christ can be done by giving to needy people. When you have done this to the least, you have done it unto me. When you have given to the poor, you have given to me. When you have seen people who are in jail or imprisoned, you have ministered to me. So one of the ways you and I can give to Christ is giving to those who are less fortunate to, than us. The Hebrews 2 talks about the gift of praise in the middle, in the midst of the brethren. That we will continue to praise him and to give him the testimonies, to give him the praise, to give him the worship. That when we sing, we sing to his glory. In the book of Acts, when they gave, they gave to, they came and they presented at the feet of the apostles so that they could distribute to the needs of those within the body, to meet the ministry needs. That's a way I can give to Christ this year, is to giving through my tithes, my offerings. We can give to Christ by giving of our will to him, presenting unto him our bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, that is pleasing unto doing his will. We can give to him by giving him trust, obedience, giving to him, by giving the gift of telling others about him, bringing others to Jesus Christ. 
we can give to him by serving in the local church, by teaching, by ministering, by helping, by aiding, by participating in different ministries that enhance the ministry of his body. We give to him by ministering to those who are elderly, those who are widows, which he says is the first and foremost of religious activity, is helping those who are the aged or those who are orphaned. So you and I have opportunity to give. We can't say in 2018, well, we just don't know what to give. Jesus is not one of those individuals that you think about at Christmas time and say, what do you give the person who has everything? Jesus, who owns everything, still, we can list out plenty of gifts we can give him that he never tires of, that he will use, that he would crave, that he would be blessed by something else that strikes me about Christ and giving to him. And I'm reminded of the Corinthians that Paul says, don't just think about it. Don't just talk about, but actually fulfill the gift giving. Don't just in your mind say, okay, I'm a senior in high school. What can I give Christ this year? As a junior, what, what endeavor can I give to ministering and to serve him a little bit better in that regard? Don't just think about it. Actually do it. Fulfill the doing of it. Can we add to it something that is seems redundant, but it's not. Actually, it's more profound. The wise men back in this story, when they gave their gifts to Christ, they left them. Now, that may sound silly to you, but think this through. They didn't stop and say, wait a minute, Um, he's just a child. What's he going to do with the gold? Maybe we could invest it and we could do something more with it and give it back to him later on. Or, or maybe, you know, these folk, this is way too much. You know, they, they, don't, they aren't wealthy. And not being wealthy, they probably don't know how to handle finances this way. Or, or maybe they're, you know, this, this poor family, we could put them in danger if we give them these gifts. So to help them out, we'll just say that we were going to give this to you and we're going to take it home with, you, with us. You know, that way it was the attitude. It was the thought that counted. And it was, it was our intentions, And maybe it's just so much better that we just... No. Wise people give the gift and they leave it with Christ. He does whatever he does with it. That's why Paul is writing in Romans 12 about presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. And the idea is don't take yourself back off the altar. Don't take yourself in your your desires of service and praise and testimony and witnessing. You don't just give it and then walk away months later and say, well, I've, I've rescinded my gift. You think about it. As you come into 2018... Have there been commitments you've made to the Lord in the past year that you have reneged on? Wise people don't do that. Wise individuals, they don't come to Christ and say, I am going to make it a goal to witness, and then later on they stop. They gave that gift to Christ, they're going to follow through with it. You don't, give, you don't give the gift of living peaceably with all men and trying to keep short accounts and work at unity. We did a whole series just weeks ago. Just weeks ago on the idea of bodybuilding, I'm amazed what has happened in the last few weeks since then in the attacks and the, and the conflicts are beyond anything I've ever seen in this church. But there was an intent, there was a desire that says we're going to really strive for unity and now the smallest things have set some people off against one another. What happened to the commitments that were made in these regards? 
What happened to the desire to say, you know, we really wanted to strive? Well, we know what happens. The enemy is wise to attack us in the areas that we make commitments. So do we pull back? You said, you said that you were going to faithfully pray. You were going to spend 15 minutes a day in prayer. Have you pulled that gift back? You said when you were at camp that we were going to surrender our life and I'm going to be a real testimony to the others at school. How's it been? How's your conversation gone from the time that you came from that room in the back hall and came in here and knelt here and prayed and said, God, I'm really going to give my life to you. Back last August, then what's it been like since then? You see, wise people don't just give a gift and walk away and do their own thing. They give the gift and they leave it there, and though it's a battle and it's a struggle, they realize, I gave to Christ, and I'll maintain giving to Christ. Wise individuals are individuals that we talk about have humility, that they, they humble before the Lord. They give gifts to the Lord, and they leave it there. Let me add this. Real wise men, as we wrap up this evening, they are individuals who do what God says to do after worship is done. It is so easy for you and me to sit in an auditorium like this, to raise our hands, and it's appropriate to do that. To come forward at times, it's appropriate to do that. To walk out of here and pray with others about certain things, it's appropriate to do that. But it is easy to do that in this facility and then walk away and not listen to Christ. And then come back next week and then feel bad about not listening. Wise individuals realize that what we need to do is we need to follow through in this area of following Jesus Christ when we walk out of this room, when we leave this property, when we go to work, when we go to school, follow the Word of God, even if the Word of God challenges us to do things that are uncomfortable. Here, watch the passage. They have been told, they have said themselves, we are going to return to Herod, right? We're going to come back, Herod, and we're going to tell you where Christ is. Herod has already given him information. He's, in, he's asked the wise men, the scholars, the scribes. They said he's in Bethlehem of Judea. They say, fine, we'll come back, we'll let you know. But then when they're there and worship Christ, then they are told, we've read about it, where they are told by the Lord that it says, in verse 12, being warned of God in a dream, they should not return to Herod. And it says the next verse, they departed into their own country another way. They listened to what the Lord said when worship was done. Here they are, they're told, and even though it goes contrary to what they said they would do, God's authority over them dictates a greater ethic and a hierarchical ethic that says, you don't keep your word to do something that is contrary to God's word. Well, I told my friend I wouldn't tell on them. You have a greater responsibility to God than to that friend when you gave a, a promise or a commitment that was errant. We need to obey God. When God, well, I told my friend that I would meet them at such and such a place, but my parents said, I can't. But I told them, I've got to keep my word. No, you follow the higher authority, the authority that God established. Even if it goes contrary to something you had said you would do, you listen to God. You do what God says. And by the way, you learn to be more careful what you tell other people. Here in this passage, it's going to cost them more time, more effort, it's going to be more, more challenging. They're going to be breaching some new ground. It would be easier to go back over the ground they're familiar with. They'd have an idea. But they're going to now embark homeward a different way. Different than what they thought. Different than what they intended. But this is what God told them. 
And even though it's going to add to the project, even though it's going to be challenging, even if they, they're going to have to follow something else other than the star and it's not going to be as a direct route as what they had thought, we're doing what God says. This is what God dictated in our own normal life. I was reading a story about a gentleman, and it really just, it just, the parallels were just, were just challenging to me. There's a gentleman that comes out of the Bedford, Massachusetts history of the early 1900s. His name is, as we put up there, Eliezer uh, Hall. He was one of the well-known ship's captains of that time. Everybody knew about him. And he was one of those typical older type of sailors who was, you know, pretty cogity, you know, type of a rough, gruff individual. But he was known as being one of the most, one of the most expertise sailors of his era. In fact, he would often go out and stay out on their different whaling voyages or merchant voyages longer than most captains, and they always made it back. And so he had a history. He had this legacy of people just saying that he just knew where he was. That was uncanny. He could be out in the ocean, and he would have an idea to read the, the different weather and the different, you know, and, and have a clue. His crew would come back and say, it's amazing. He knew exactly where we were. And so the story was going around, how, did you, how do you figure out where you are? How do you know this thing without all of the modern charts and the modern equipment that was coming into, into practice more and more during that time period? And his response was this that was recorded. I just go up on the deck and I listen to the wind. I listen to the rigging. I feel the drift of the ocean. I look up at the stars and then I set my course based on where I am. But how do you know that? I just know that. And I just, quote unquote, I try to be, be, take into account every, my entire environment. Just kind of suck it and soak it all in. Well, what happened around that time period is there was a real shift in the, shif- in the shipping industry. Insurance companies started not insuring the ships unless somebody on board had, had certified navigations, navigational skills. They had to go to school, and usually was the captain. And so the men who ran the ship that basically hired Eliezer Cook for all this time, they were afraid to go to him and say, Captain, you can't sail for us anymore unless you go to school to get your navigator's certificate. I mean, they were afraid. They, they, the story goes that they put this off, put this off, and uh, they were told by their insurance companies, you send him out, your ships aren't insured in his leadership. So finally one of them, went, one of the partners, went and spoke to him, and the response was not quite what he expected. He, the older man, the sailor, just said, well, if I must, I must. And so the next week, he's sitting in school with all these young men, and he's taking these classes on stuff that he could be teaching, but he's getting certified. And so he sits in this course for a couple months. He gets his certificate. He goes out now, and he's going he's gonna to go on his voyage. And so everybody is just you know, curious how this goes for him, who's now got his certificate to know how to sail and navigate. And the time comes, weeks, months later, that he's coming back into Bedford. The entire town turned out. They were so curious to find out how he handled this whole new scientific method of navigating that had been popularized in recent decades. And so he gets in, and his men are saying, it was just amazing, you know, how he just knew where we were, knew all that. So they asked him, they interviewed him afterwards. They said, you know, how did it go with all this newfangled stuff? He said, well, there's many days that I would you know, want to figure out where I'm at. I'd go down into my cabin. I'd pull out all those different charts that they taught us to look at and pull out all the different devices that they told us to use. I would use all these things and plot where I, where I thought I was. Then I'd go up on deck. 
and I would listen to the wind and look at the rigging. I'd feel the drift of the ocean. I'd look up at the stars, and he says, then I'd go back downstairs and I'd correct everything that I had written. How many times are we like this that we have everything scientifically formulated? We have everything figured out by the books and the charts. Or maybe there are times we just need to listen to the Lord a little bit better. Just pause and meditate and just be still and know that he is God. Maybe I wrote it out in a prayer form with this story that goes kind of like this. Lord, help us to know you the way that this man knew his ocean. To be so in tune with you that we can go up on deck and hear your quiet voice, consider your great works, then sit down and make the necessary adjustments to all those fine, logical, scientific plans that we have drawn up in our heads. Where we listen to the Spirit of God about our future. Where we listen to the Spirit of God about how we're raising our kids and responding to our siblings. When we listen to the Spirit of God about our ethics, our attitudes, our service, our sacrifice. Where we listen to the Spirit of God speak to us about sharing the Word, about praying. And we put aside all those plans that we have made and we adjust them to the Spirit of God. That would be the wise person's desire. That would be what you and I should crave this year, coming into the year to be more in tune with the Spirit of God. To be an individual who says, I want to be wise like those individuals of old. The wise men who have this reputation. I want to be a real biblical wise person. One who is following you, living for you, dedicated to you. One who is showing right attitudes towards others. One who is humbled himself enough before others and you that I will make adjustments. One that will walk away from the worship center and do what you have told me to do. To give you the gifts that you have told me that you are pleased with and to leave them with you. Wisdom. 2018. We embark on a year. We're seven days in. Are we going to be wise people? Wiser than we were in 2018. By saying, God, you... You are my leader, my Lord. I will be the listener and the laborer. Father, help us to do that. Help us to be individuals, that we are yielded to you, that we are serving you to the best of our spirits, to the best of our hearts. Help us to give to you the best of our worship, our praise, our sacrifice, our gifts, our humility. Help us to be individuals who please you, First and foremost, we pray in your name.